Hello and welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. This week we are bringing you an episode from Democracy Matters, a podcast produced by the Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. Hosts Abe Goldberg, Kara Ong Whaley, and Angelina Clapp are joined by Walter Schaub of the Project on Government Oversight for a conversation about why ethics and oversight are important in American democracy and what individuals can do to hold elected officials accountable. These topics can sometimes seem dry and boring, but Walter, who you may know is prolific on Twitter, on TV, and in the op-ed pages, does a great job of making these issues relevant to America's democratic experiments and the role that all of us play in ensuring its success. You can find Democracy Matters wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much to the team at JMU Civic for sharing this episode with us. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Walter Schaub. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kara ong Associate Director at JMU Civic. This is Abe Goldberg, Director of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement and faculty member in the Department of Political Science here at James Madison University. I am Angelina Clapp, the Democracy Program Fellow at JMU Civic. In this episode, we're delighted to talk with Walter Schaub, an attorney who served as the Director of the United States Office of Government Ethics from 2013 to 2017. He earned his Bachelor's in History from James Madison University and a Law Degree from American University. In his current role, he leads the Ethics and Accountability Initiative at the Project on Government Oversight. Enjoy the episode! Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Um, You've said that it's important for government officials to remember that public service is a public trust and they're serving the people. We're in a historical and political moment of low public trust in government. And while blind trust is not a good thing, the lack of trust in government can make it difficult to address pressing public challenges, such as getting folks vaccinated or believing election results, just to name a few. What can elected leaders and public officials do to address distrust in government, especially when distrust is very warranted by traditionally underrepresented, marginalized, and minoritized groups? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, That's a really good question. I think for the length of time that I was at OGE, our unofficial motto was that we were trying to rebuild public trust. And The Office of Government Ethics, where I worked, was a creation of the uh, Watergate era, where in the aftermath, Congress tried to implement a number of measures to restore public trust in government. And I think that we're at an even more challenging period of time right now because you have very powerful forces consciously trying to undermine that trust both internally and externally to the U.S. We've got Russia, for instance, launching a disinformation campaign that's focused on dividing us, and they don't even have a specific objective. The objective is to make us angry at each other and not trust each other, and so it's just a chaos bomb they try to throw into the equation, and they're very good at it. But internally, obviously, we have people spreading the big lie, as they call it, that the last election was somehow stolen when there's absolutely zero evidence of that and significant evidence to the contrary. 
And in that environment, it's always going to be hard to restore public trust because you have people actively trying to undermine it. And I think when it comes to elected officials, they're very deliberate about what they're doing. Some of them are actively trying to undermine public trust, and some of them are actively trying to build it. You know, the best you can hope for is that the public will be questioning uh, things they're being told and seeking out information themselves. But when it comes to the elected officials, I think that they'll be hard to persuade to take a different course of action. We just saw this week Liz Cheney um, with very solid conservative credentials, certainly more conservative than the person who's replacing her, ousted for challenging President Trump's big lie. Um, And so this is a very deliberate effort. I think, however, there are things that both um, career government officials and the public can do. And I think it's very important for career government officials to be mindful at all times. And these are the folks that are below the political level, the folks that carry over from one administration to the next, that everything they do reflects on the government and it impacts the public trust. And they may think, oh, well, I'm just a small background figure. It doesn't matter, but it always matters. And we had a vivid case this week where a judge, um, Amy Berman Jackson found that two career government attorneys at the Department of Justice uh, misled her in affidavits when they said that a particular memo that was sent to Bill Barr was sent before he made a decision whether or not to prosecute President Trump. And the judge demanded that the Justice Department show them the memo, and they fought her and said, you have no business looking at this, you should take our word for it. The government's entitled to a presumption of regularity, meaning that you assume that their motives are good and their actions are are consistent with procedures. Well, when she got the memo, because she demanded they release it anyways, she said nobody could read this memo and not realize the decision had already been made. It was very clear in the memo that the decision was already made. And yet these two attorneys signed affidavits saying the decision had not been made before we sent this memo. And they signed it, I swear, under penalties of perjury that these are true statements. And I guess maybe they hoped the judge would never see the document they were lying about. Um, So I think that it's incumbent on career officials not to get sucked into the chaos of political appointees. And remember that they're there to uphold the law and um, remember always that it's the public they're serving. And I think for the public, the most important thing we have to do is get engaged in the work of our democracy. I think too many of us uh, we're lulled into a false sense of security, thinking that democracy's institutions were strong enough to withstand any assault. And they clearly are not. And they clearly need us actively seeking information from multiple sources and challenging government officials who don't tell us the truth. So I guess that's not a very optimistic perspective when it comes to elected officials, but I do believe uh, career officials and um, uh, the public are not helpless. Thank you for that response. Um, Mr. Schaub, you wrote in the Washington Post about how President Biden 
has not delivered on his campaign promise of wide-scale ethics reform within the government, which was seen as a direct response to the ethics violations committed by the Trump administration over the past four years. What should the administration do to create long-lasting ethics reform within government? And considering the fact that the executive branch is inherently impermanent, what should Congress do to strengthen ethics? That's great. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I took some heat on social media for that op-ed, and I knew I would when I wrote it because so many people said, well, he's new in the job and he's got a lot to do and we're in the middle of a pandemic. And my response to that, of course, and I tried to address that preemptively in the article, is that um, sure, it's not fair that he has to deal with multiple things at once, but the reality is that if he has any ambition of getting any of the reforms he promised through Congress, he's got to do it while he's got people who are willing to work with him in Congress in charge. And, you know, I'm determined to stay nonpartisan in this, so I'm not trying to suggest that one side or the other should be in control of Congress. But strategically and realistically, if he has ambitions of reforms, he's only going to get those through uh, during the period of time that that he's got people supportive of his his bills. And his proposals talked extensively about reforms that could only be done through legislation. And he used terms like, I will enact. Well, of course, implicit in that is, I will enact as soon as Congress passes uh, certain proposals. And um, the truth is, you know, Congress could change hands in 2022. In fact, at least one, if not both chambers, are very likely to do that. Um, And, you know, maybe he will be better by then at persuading people across the aisle to support his proposals. But right now, the Congress seems so divided that any thought that he's going to persuade people um, from from the opposite party to go along with him seems fairly far-fetched. And so he has to work backwards from, well, I've only got until this deadline to get these laws passed. And the reality is that you don't show up at Congress with a written bill that you wrote overnight and you say, let's pass this. And it flies through committee next week and then flies through the full House and then the full Senate. Uh, The reality is that Congress seems to move at a glacial pace and it takes months and months and months, uh, sometimes years to build momentum for reforms. Um, So he's already running out of time. And there's a bill right now, the H.R. 1, the For the People Act, uh, which passed the House, and its companion bill in the Senate is called S-1. And um, this has a number of reforms, but it came from other sectors of his party, uh, and it's viewed more as a bill by people in Congress. The White House has not really taken it on as their own bill. And the problem is this bill has already passed one chamber of Congress. It only has to pass one more in order to become law. Um, But the administration is not spending any political capital on getting this through. They've made a few vague statements about we support H.R. 1 or we hope the Senate passes it. But the reality is that there's a filibuster mechanism that will 
cause it to die in the Senate unless they either repeal, the, you know, change, get rid of the filibuster or change the way it works. There's zero chance they'll get rid of the filibuster. There are two members of Congress who are very prominently opposed to it. Quietly, there are about as many as almost a half dozen others who would not vote for getting rid of it, but they've managed to stay behind the scenes because the other two are taking the hit. People are upset with those two, but the reality is there are at least half a dozen and maybe more people on his own side who won't support repealing the filibuster, but they could rein it in and they could turn it into a, a talking filibuster where you have to do what Jimmy Stewart did and Mr. Smith goes to Washington and talk until you collapse and then your filibuster ends. Um, and so we can turn this into an athletic event that these folks um, can only endure for so long. Um, the White House has not been out there championing that and, and demanding that and putting pressure on members of Congress to do that. And they haven't been out there building public support for H.R. 1. And, and fine, if they don't like H.R. 1, OK, but give us something else. And they haven't given anything else either. Now, I get that they probably don't want to propose anything until H.R. 1 passes or dies, but that thing's not moving all that fast, and they are running out of time, so they either need to get with the program on H.R. 1 or get some proposals of their own going, and that isn't happening, and we're running out of time. Um, and the problem is he could have, theoretically, the best, most ethical administration in the world. Let's say it's perfect and they never have a single violation, which is impossible. No administration has. But for, for this fantasy hypothetical, let's say they lead a perfect administration. All of that ends when he leaves. Nothing he has done will carry forward into the next administration. So unless Congress passes laws, we are no more protected against corruption than we were this time last year. I don't know if you've taught courses or guest lectured in presidential leadership classes before, but so much of your response taps right into that literature about the, the power to persuade, right? Like when we think about what presidential power is, the, 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 the power to persuade others to do what you want them to do, given the checks and balances uh, of our system, but then also about how, how really so many presidents are going to have their best bet for broad reform towards the very beginning of their administration, um, which requires, as you said, that expenditure of of political capital. So it's really just textbook presidential leadership that um, that you're referring to here. That 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 you're saying that um, that the president has not been doing, and 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 the concern, I guess, is that he would run out of time. Um, if he decides to take it on longer in his administration, maybe he does lose Congress or maybe he just spends his political capital in other ways. And we can predict that, you know, as with most presidents, they tend to lose capital throughout the course of their term. That's right. And it comes at a cost. I mean, when we talk about spending political capital, you really are spending something. You, you lose other opportunities because you disaffect people who don't agree with you on this, or you only have a certain bandwidth for spreading your message and advocating for something. Um, and, and, but it's important that they do that because, you know, we refer to the bully pulpit, the president has leverage that no one else in the government has. You have over 400 members of the House and over, um, you, you know, you've got a 100 members of the Senate. And um, 
no one of them can speak for an entire branch of government. But the president can command media attention and can put public pressure on members of Congress who, of his own party who won't support his proposals. Um, that then comes at a cost because it, your, your ratings, your as Trump used to put it, or your, your polling numbers tend to go down. Um, but it's also true that at the beginning, you have the most. And that's when President Obama got his Affordable Health Care Act passed early on, and then it cost him and he couldn't get some other things through. Um, the problem is, I can't imagine what in the world this administration could think is more important than protecting us against the authoritarian and corrupt movement um, that they were elected to stop. And, um, you know, and, and Liz Cheney is spending political capital. It cost her her leadership position. Um, and whether one agrees with her political views or not, she didn't do this for free. She paid a price for standing up and saying the big lie is just that, a lie. Um, and I don't see this administration spending the political capital to make sure that we bolster democracy. Uh, and really, um, authoritarianism and corruption are linked inextricably. So fighting one is fighting the other. And if we don't get permanent government ethics reforms in place through legislation, um, all we've done is given ourselves a calm between storms for a few years, but uh, have done nothing to fortify the, the, the ramparts and the, and the barricades holding back authoritarianism. And um, how they haven't eliminated that, I can't understand. So we really need HR1 to pass, if only to stop members of Congress from sitting on corporate boards. Thank you so much. As you were talking, I couldn't help but think back to Federalist 51 and this notion that Madison have of how do you get government <laughs> to control itself, right? And and some of these are, you know, what you're what you've just gone through are really you know, some of the mechanisms that we're lacking in order to have um, greater accountability um, within government. And so switching gears from from ethics to and and OEG to OIG, the offices of inspector generals, um, you know, they they serve as as independent watchdogs within federal agencies. Um, the project on government o oversight, where you now work, has has a tracker for vacancies, um, and and there's a, a large number of inspector general vacancies in various agencies, including some that have some vacancies that have existed since 2014 um, in the Department of Defense, Department of State, Central Intelligence a Agency, Department of Treasury, Department of Education, Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Labor, USAID, and the Election Assistance Commission. So all the biggies, right? <laughs> these aren't like small agencies that are, that are missing key, these key positions. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what these vacancies portend for government accountability and oversight and what the implications are for democracy in having uh, a lack of oversight and accountability. Yeah. So um, inspector generals are really the 
public's eyes and ears inside the government. They have access to things we can't get, and they function independently of agency management. And so they're able to come in and really give an objective look at the things an agency is doing. They do investigations and audits. So they they look for wrongdoing, but they also look for inefficiency and incompetence and, and anything else that can go wrong. Um, so they're incredibly important. Like anyone else, they're human beings, and so some are better than others. Um, but as an institution, they've been very successful, and they recover billions of lost dollars every year, uh, clearly paying for themselves as an institution. They, they, they save the government more money than they cost, and they bolster public confidence by rooting out wrongdoers. Um, the the problem with filling vacancies has predated even the last administration. We've got all these vacancies, but it's not strictly a Trump problem. The prior administration, the Obama administration, was often criticized for not uh, filling IG positions. Looking back, I sometimes speculate that that may have been a matter of strategy because they knew their opponents on the Hill wanted IGs and they weren't willing to nominate them until they got some of the ones they wanted through that were being blocked. Um, that bothers me, even though it's at least an explanation, if it's true, because these positions need to be filled. We need that objective uh, look. And so a lot of groups, including the one I work for, are pushing um, the current administration to finally fill all these vacancies. Now, some people may say, well, what difference does it make because they'll be an acting official anyways? Whoever's the highest career official may take over and run the place. Um, first of all, that's not always true. In the last administration, um, President Trump pushed out an acting inspector general at the Defense Department and assigned the EPA IG to become the IG for both the Defense Department and EPA. Any one of those jobs is potentially overwhelming. Having someone in two jobs, um, it's an impossible scenario, and it raises questions about whether you've cherry-picked that IG to come over and do it because you know that IG is a loyalist and won't do objective investigations, and that's concerning too. Um, so I, I think it's incredibly important that they be filled. I also think it's incredibly important that they be filled with people who have a reputation for not being political. And to that end, there's a Council on Inspectors General for Integrity and Efficiency, SIGI, set up by statute that's a board of all the IGs, and they come together and they work together to develop skills and processes and, and, and figure out solutions that they could all apply or that they need help from Congress or the administration to apply. That's the body that should be recommending inspectors general to the White House. The White House should ask them, who do you think would be a good inspector general for this job? Give me, you know, half a dozen recommendations and we'll pick one from that list, but give us several recommendations. I don't think that a White House should go off and just pick who they want for a job like that. I think they need input from the experts. Um, 
And I'm and I'm very opposed to presidents firing inspectors general. We saw that in the last administration where President Trump fired a couple inspectors general, clearly in retaliation for doing their jobs, um, and uh, replaced at least one um, acting inspector general for doing his job. And that undermines not only those IG offices, but other IG offices, because it tempts inspectors general to pull their punches to avoid getting fired and think, well, we'll just live another day. And in fact, there's evidence that the Department of Homeland Security inspector general was suppressing investigations that would embarrass President Trump. And so even though I'm opposed to firing inspectors general generally, I think this administration should fire a few from the last administration, not all, because I think that would just be completely partisan. But I think there are a few, including uh, the DHS inspector general, who should be fired for their partisanship um, and replaced with recommend people recommended by SIGI. Uh, but except for those few, I don't think that Others should be fired just because they were appointed by a prior president, um, and so I think I think the inspectors general need more protection as well. When we saw the president fire the inspector general for the intelligence community, it was because he fulfilled the legal requirement to notify Congress when a whistleblower alerted him to wrongdoing by the president that led to the president's impeachment. And he was fired in retaliation for that. I think a statute needs to lay out the for-cause standard that um, an inspector general can only be fired for certain specified reasons. And then I think the inspector general should be authorized to file a lawsuit and the government should have to prove, bear the burden of proof uh, that the standard was met. And I also think that because the statute says the president has to give Congress 30 days notice before firing an inspector general, the government should be limited in its defense to presenting only whatever evidence it showed Congress. Um, and so if the president sends a letter like the last one did saying, I fired him because I lost confidence in him, but offered no evidence and no documents or no explanation then the president should have to go into court and say, well, I'm not permitted to submit any evidence, but I lost confidence in him. And then the IG will clearly win and be reinstated. That would force presidents to reveal to Congress their true reasons for firing somebody and evidence up front during the 30-day notice period when Congress is supposed to have a chance to be able to create enough pressure to stop that firing. And it would give the inspector general fair notice of the evidence against him or her so they could go into court and rebut that evidence or at least um, force the government to try to prove the evidence is true. Um, without that, I think we leave inspectors general vulnerable to retaliation. I'd like to see the same standard apply to the director of office of government ethics. And there's an agency called the Office of Special Counsel, which is not related to Mueller. It's a standalone agency um, that investigates whistleblower retaliation claims and Hatch Act violations. And the Hatch Act, as many people learned the hard way in the last administration, is the law that prohibits misusing your government position to influence an election. 
Um, so I'd like to see all of those watchdogs protected with both a legal standard for how they can be fired and a right to file a lawsuit if they do get fired. I think you've just inspired several dissertation <laughs> <laughs> topics. <laughs> you tweeted on April 23rd, too many people think the threat to the Republic has subsided. That's what keeps me up at night. How do you characterize the nature and extent of threats to American democracy and what should individuals do to be informed, effective and active participants in democracy? I personally think there's an authoritarian movement in this country that isn't isolated to this country. We're seeing similar things in various stages of development across the Western world. We're seeing a very scary um, rise of it in France. It hasn't taken hold yet, but it's trying. We're seeing in Poland and Hungary, it's really gotten its hooks into government and is creating a scary situation reminiscent of the 20th century. Um, and we're seeing similar movements all over the West. And uh, we're no exception to that. And I think it's important to remember that it's not happening in a vacuum, that it's happening across the West. It's being inspired uh, actively by Russia and maybe to a lesser extent by China. The, these are countries that feel they will fare better um, in a world in which all the governments are authoritarian like theirs and they don't face critics or rivals from uh, the free world. And in Russia's case, unlike China, Russia knows that it can never lift itself up um, to a level um, where economically or militarily it's comparable to the United States. And so what it wants to do is bring the United States down. Uh, and that may be why its efforts are more dramatic and more fervent um, and open than China's, because China is a peer nation and has uh, a more powerful military than we have and a uh, growing economy. And so it's similar. It's situated differently than Russia, which has nothing to lose and everything to gain by just throwing chaos bombs at us. Um Internally to the U.S., it's terrifying that we have members of Congress um, supporting the big lie. And even to the extent of ousting one of their most loyal party members from uh, a leadership position because she wouldn't back this big lie. And this big lie is what fueled the insurrection on January 6th. But now you even have members of Congress who are claiming there was no insurrection as though we've all imagined what happened on January 6th and a, a violent gang didn't come in and murder a police officer inside the Capitol and run around screaming that they should hang Mike Pence. Um, this is scary stuff and it's being coupled by an even more effective effort at voter suppression once you manage to suppress the votes of people that you've targeted for uh, race or economics or anything else, um, we don't have a truly representative country. And one could argue we never have had a truly representative country, but we're moving in a direction away from achieving that goal if we're throwing up barriers to people voting. And I fear that... Um, 
the lesson we learned in the last four years is that, you know, people talk about how there were all these norms that fell when a president just ignored them. And so they say what we need is laws instead of norms. I don't necessarily share that view. I think we need both laws and norms because the nor- the laws are just as weak as the norms if there's no one willing to enforce them. You you had a case where Robert Mueller concluded an investigation and said if I could have said that the if I had if I had confidence that the president had not committed obstruction of justice, I would say so. He wrote that in his report, but he says, you have a policy that says I can't prosecute the president, and it would be unfair to say that he committed a crime without being able to prosecute him because he wouldn't have a forum in which to defend himself, which would be the criminal court in which he'd be prosecuted. (laughs) So he says, I can't claim that he violated it because it would be unfair to him if I if I did that without prosecuting him and giving him a chance to defend himself, but I won't say he didn't do it. And if I didn't think he did it, I would say he didn't do it. So that's like as clear as, you know, it's muddled. But what he's saying is he thinks the man was guilty. You similarly had these Hatch Act violations that were repeatedly committed by officials, including Kellyanne Conway, the president's senior counselor, who began openly violating it and at the end sort of thumbing her nose at the um, Office of Special Counsel that that investigates Hatch Act violations. In fact, my favorite souvenir of the Trump era is this ridiculous two-second video clip where she's talking to the press and realizes she's treading into Hatch Act territory. So she stops, looks at the camera and says, Walter Schaub, calm down, and then continues. <laughs> and that was, or, or she said to somebody, um, let me know when they come to take me away to Hatch Act jail or whatever. And she just mocked the law. Um, so there's, the, the problem is when you have an authoritarian government, um, it, and it won't enforce the laws against itself. There's no one to enforce it. Uh, another example is that in April 2019, they fought, the House issued a subpoena to Don McGahn trying to get him to testify. Don McGahn was the, the former counsel to the president for Donald Trump, his, his first counsel to the president. And um, McGahn refused to testify. And so they took him to court. Well, the case wound its way up and down and up and down the courts. And now, two years later, everybody just kind of threw up their hands and McGahn agreed to a behind-closed-door deposition, um, which won't be as embarrassing to him because the same as the Mueller report was nearly 400 pages long and most of America didn't read it, most of America won't read the transcript of his deposition and it won't have the power that deposing him in front of a camera would have had where people will watch video clips. So he managed to dodge accountability that way. Congress is probably satisfied that it got um, its hooks into him and, and are going to be able to ask him questions. But what they didn't get and they didn't see through to the end was a court decision saying that they have a right to compel somebody to testify so that in the future they don't have to litigate for two years to an inconclusive end. They'll be able to wave the decision around. 
And without that, we are now no closer to reining in the growing power of the presidency and restoring some balance where the legislative branch has some power. And that, frankly, is is very scary because it, it, it means, again, that a president can violate lots of laws. A corrupt attorney general can choose not to prosecute or do anything. And Congress can't do anything about it because they can't haul a witness in to testify. Um, so that's why I think the threat remains. I also think that because H.R. 1 and other laws have not been enacted, other bills have not been enacted to strengthen our defenses against authoritarian abuse, abuses by giving private individuals the right to sue or Congress a right to sue. Um, over various violations, we're no better off than we were a year ago. And I, I think in some ways you have witting and unwitting um, participants in this growing uh, trend of authoritarianism that that you've got this authoritarian movement that consciously wants to be authoritarian, but you also have a growth of the presidency that um, Arthur Schlesinger warned us about back in the 60s or 50s when he coined the phrase imperial presidency. And um, as further evidence of how both sides have been complicit in that, it was President Biden's Department of Justice that continued defending Don McGahn after the inauguration. And they're the ones who negotiated the settlement with the justice, I mean, with the legislative branch that McGahn would do this behind the scenes deposition. They didn't come in and say, we're going to restore the balance of power between branches. And we're going to ensure that Congress has its subpoenas honored because we're going to show up in court and say, as the Department of Justice, everything we've been saying to you for the past two years is wrong. The legislative branch is right. Your Honor, we'd like you to issue a decision saying that our our um, person here, Don McGahn, must come in and testify. Instead, the Justice Department, which is notoriously pro-executive branch power, and this administration, which comes from a long um, history of officials who have been inside Washington and many of whom have previously worked inside the executive branch, thought it made sense to resist this congressional subpoena, just as President Trump had done. And so when the guy who's elected to roll back um, the authoritarian excesses of the last administration defends it in court, um, that's cause for concern because it means both sides are to different degrees and very different degrees. I'm not trying to draw a false equivalency here. They are not equivalent, but it's just an example of the little ways in which every presidential administration has been jealous in guarding its authority and its power against legislative oversight. And that's, that's terrifying. So I, I think our country is in for a real reckoning, um, and I only hope uh, democracy wins in this struggle. You've given us a segue to a question that we ask all of our guests. We've now had over 50 episodes of Democracy Matters, and we're so honored to have you join us. 
um, and really what is a sobering account of, of the current state of democracy and what could be to come. Um, so with that, you know, we do ask, what would you do to strengthen our democracy? I think the most important thing in any republic is ensuring that we're electing leaders who represent all Americans and voter suppression is the greatest threat to that. So I think the very first thing I would focus on uh, would be fighting this voter suppression legislation and making sure all Americans can vote. I would like to see an end to gerrymandering as well so that members of Congress don't live in jurisdictions in districts, I mean, don't lead districts that look like a spleen or a human intestine. I mean, the, some of these shapes are ridiculous and are obvious that they're carving them out to to make sure a particular person retains office. Um, and I frankly don't think we're ever going to be out of the woods until we stop treating corporations like humans and let them have all the benefits of citizenship by being able to support um, candidates indirectly with ads as long as they don't coordinate with the candidate. Um, and not coordinating sometimes seems like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, because you know they are coordinating. Um, until we have those reforms, I don't see how we can ever truly have government ethics. I do think there's a lot we can do to improve the situation by requiring more government transparency. And internal to the executive branch, we need presidents to stop trying to expand or aggrandize, as they say, presidential power. Um, and that includes not defending uh, former presidential assistants who refused to testify, like Don McGahn. Uh, there's the Office of Legal Counsel within the Justice Department that keeps issuing opinions that control the fate of what the Justice Department does and wind up affecting all of us. And they don't even release all of those opinions. Um, and I'm referring, for instance, to the opinion they issued that says a president can't be prosecuted. Well, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that. There's not even a statute that says that. The Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel just ginned that up with a very weak opinion. Um, what the public doesn't necessarily know is they have at least as many, if not more, secret opinions. and. When these opinions say the Justice Department or a federal agency can't do something or must do something, um, there's no one withstanding to challenge it. You can't go into court and sue and say this OLC opinion's wrong. Uh, an agency should be able to do this or should not be able to do this. Um, one example of an opinion that was made public was an opinion by the head of OLC, the Office of Legal Counsel, Stephen Engel, that answered a question Bill Barr referred to him about the FDA. The FDA didn't refer to him, and so if you read between the lines, it's clear that the FDA and the Justice Department disagreed on something, and Bill Barr pulled out the trump card, no pun intended, um, and 
referred the matter to the Office of Legal Counsel. The question was, can the FDA regulate death penalty drugs? And the, Stephen Engel wrote this opinion that the FDA cannot um, regulate death penalty drugs because by definition, these drugs are being misused to kill someone. <laughs> and <laughs> the whole opinion rests on the idea that misusing these drugs puts them out of the realm of FDA's um, regulation because they can't be made safe. Well, first of all, you're misusing the drugs, so that ought to be illegal. And second of all, um, there still is a concept of safety in terms of not causing inordinate pain. Um, and there's real concern that maybe these drugs are causing pain. But Bill Barr wanted to go on a killing spree at the end of the Trump administration, and he needed the FDA brushed out of the way. OLC issued this opinion, and even though they tell the court, we don't have to release our opinions in response to Freedom of Information Act requests because they're just advice and they're not binding on anyone, they told the FDA in the opinion, you may not regulate um, death penalty drugs. And internal to the executive branch, they run around telling government officials that OLC opinions are binding on them. One quick funny aside and an answer that's already gone on too long, I'm sorry, but um, I had an OLC attorney once tell me when I was in the government, our opinions are binding on you. We're like the Supreme Court for the executive branch. And I said, well, I thought the Supreme Court was the Supreme Court for the executive branch. Uh, but that's the arrogance and the, the firmness with which they tell you inside the government that their opinions are binding. But outside the government, they say to judges, oh, we're just issuing advice and nobody has to follow it. And because it's just advice, it's not releasable under the Freedom of Information Act. And judges have been buying that saying, oh, okay, well, if it's just advice, but it's not just advice. And in this case, it was particularly troubling because Congress has given FDA the authority to interpret the Food, Drug and Cosmetics Act. But OLC was usurping the power that Congress gave FDA and issued this decision. So all of that's a long-winded way of saying that um, this Office of Legal Counsel within the Justice Department in every administration has put all of its efforts into saying that presidents have more power than they otherwise would seem to have. And because most laws are carried out and enforced by the executive branch, no one can challenge them and they become effectively secret law when they're, when they're issuing these opinions and not releasing them. So I think that one thing this administration and future administrations can do is actively work to weaken the presidency. And that's, that's a tough thing to ask of them because you currently have, for instance, this administration is combating a pandemic and they feel they need all the tools and all the power they can get to save us from being killed by a pandemic. And so there's a natural tension in there. And unfortunately, um, the proclivity of every president will always be to expand their power. And until we find ways to get a congressional toehold into reigning in that power, we're going to have a problem. One thing, for instance, they could do with regard to subpoenas is issue a law saying um, 
the courts must give expedited consideration to subpoenas and so that we don't wait two years to only wind up at a settlement. You have to issue this decision as quick as possible and it has to jump ahead of every other case in your docket because it's an issue that goes straight to um, the balance of power in this republic. Um, so there are a number of things that even aside from, from campaign and voter issues, Congress can do to sort of rein in the excesses of the executive branch to make it harder for an authoritarian who winds up in the White House from abusing power and shifting us away from being um, a free country. Um, for voters, I think the most important thing, and, and I don't mean voters actually, I mean citizens. For citizens, the most important thing we can do is become active in government. And that doesn't just mean voting. I'm not advocating voting for any one party or any individual at all. I'm saying that democracy needs to be um, something we're all actively engaged in. We can't take for granted that we have democracy. And that means demanding that politicians of both parties, or if we have other parties um, gaining prominence, um, be accountable to us and be transparent and answer questions and um, and making sure that local processes for democracy are handled fairly at, at every level from the federal down to your town or county um, or school board, whatever it means. Um, but I think that for too long, Americans have been lulled into a sense that democracy happens. And the reality is that democracy is the work of the people. Um, and we need to, to make it happen on a daily basis. Walter Schaub, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. Thanks for having me. Go Dukes.